You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on November 10th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Shenanigans. Music was performed by Alicia Falberg. Well, welcome to our fifth season of Mudrooms. Thank you for braving the weather and the darkness to come out this evening. It's great to have your support. My name is Kristen Stouter. I am a new board member here on the storyboard at Mudrooms. I attended last year just as an audience member, and then I told a story, and I felt like I wanted to give back a little bit more this year, so I asked to join the storyboard. So it's great to be with you all here tonight. Mudrooms is a fully volunteer-run event. And we couldn't do this event every month without the help of a number of individuals and organizations that contribute. So I want to say a special thank you to KTOO, to COPA, The Rookery, to John Hutchins, who's our photographer for tonight, to Northern Light United Church, who allows us to use this facility every month, and also to our other board members. We have Amanda Compton. She's out of town, I believe. Alita Buss and Tom Cosgrove will be our co-hosts for the evening. Rich Moniak and Pat Roach are back on the soundboard this evening. And Steve Sewing's circulating around here somewhere, kind of keeping us all on track tonight. And thank you to you all for coming. When you came in the door, you gave $7 as a donation. That will go to CERC, um, Alaska's Educational Resource Center. And just so you know, in the four and a half seasons that Mudrooms has been going on, we've raised over $45,000 for nonprofits here in Juneau. We're also always on the lookout for speakers and especially for musicians. That can be one of the most difficult things as a board member to recruit people for, to, to help make this event happen. So I would encourage you to take a look at our website. It's mudrooms.org. You can see the upcoming events and topics that are um, coming up over the next couple of months. I remember I was a little bit on the fence last year about sharing a story, and something that Tom Cosgrove said stuck with me, and it might resonate with some of you tonight. He said something like, not every story has to be funny, not every story has to be entertaining, but every story should come from the heart. And I think that really embodies what we're about here at Mudrooms, which is creating community through sharing of our stories. So that being said, tonight's theme, I think, might lend itself to be a little bit more on the entertaining side. Tonight's theme is shenanigans. I know, you all laugh. I think we might hear some tales of, of mischief, maybe a little bit of uh, confessions coming out tonight. We'll see. I was um, on the phone this last week with my best friend, and she was reminding me of some shenanigans from our college years. Not the typical college years shenanigans you're probably used to, um, but my best friend and I, we went to school together in Washington, and our first two years at school, we lived in this house with 15 girls, it was called The Mansion. It was a Christian girls' house. It was affiliated with this on-campus Christian group that we went to at the time. And um, so The Mansion was, it had a lot of rules given the nature of the house. There's a lot of structure that went into the house. And one of the rules was that every girl at the house had a chore. And it might be anything from cleaning the bathroom to doing dishes. But the fav my favorite quarter was the quarter that my best friend and I got to be shoppers for the mansion. So what happened was every week we would give part of our, our rent money would go towards groceries for the house. And it was kind of meant to be this community-oriented type of event where every weeknight we would take turns making dinner for all of our housemates and for any guests that would come over. So we could have about 20 people over. But that in itself really required two dedicated people to make a shopping trip each week for the mansion. 
So Lisa and I were really excited to be shoppers. We, um, it's not that the girls before were doing a poor job by any means, but they were more of the one-stop shopper kinds of people. So they'd, they'd go to Fred Meyer, they would load up as much as they could basically until the money ran out. But usually by like Wednesday, we would be out of produce. By Thursday, we'd be out of milk. And sometimes on Fridays, we'd run out of toilet paper. And that was bad. People would break into the fortune cookies and kind of get whatever shreds of paper that they could. So Lisa and I resolved, well, under our shopping rule, we will never run out of these things. We'll never run out of toilet paper, especially because we knew how the food scene worked in our town. So we had this routine on Saturday morning. We would go first to this place called Deals Only. And you drive up and there's a big sign that says Deals Only. And underneath that sign, <laughs> underneath that sign, there's another sign that says we only have deals, like in case there could be any confusion. So we would load up at Deals Only. Then we'd go down the street to the grocery outlet where we would load up as much as we could. Usually they had good deals on toilet paper. And I can still remember one time we got a request, someone wanted fruit juice in the house. So we got a cart full of, I think prune juice was on sale. And we followed that with a cart of toilet paper, which looked really great when we came through the checkout line. We got all sorts of questions. But I think our finest moment as shoppers was uh, one time someone wanted, after we'd already finished shopping, they wanted some tomatoes. We got a call, we need some tomatoes for some fresh salsa for dinner tonight. And we're like, great, we've already finished up all of our shopping. What are we going to do? Do we tell them no? Do we buy it with our own money? But something I haven't said so far is that not only did we check out the discount stores, but we checked out the dumpsters of the discount stores as well. So we went back to the grocery outlet. We pawed through the dumpster, and we did find some tomatoes, which was amazing. It was a miracle, really. We brought those home, but what we didn't know that night was that the fresh salsa was being prepared for our dinner, and guests that were coming for dinner was the pastor and his family, and we were feeding them dumpster salsa. I think after that, that effectively cured our dumpster diving for the house. We had to get the food, but we didn't have to say where it came from. But I don't think we ever told them, but 10 years later, you know. So I'm excited. We'll get to hear some more shenanigans from our seven speakers tonight. I'm going to hand it over right now to our co-hosts for the evening, Tom Cosgrove and Alita Buss. Good evening. My name is Alita Buss. And my name is Tom Cosgrove. And this is... Mudroom! You're about to hear seven stories told by your friends and neighbors based around the theme shenanigans. Get ready. So we hope you enjoy it. To keep on our very uh, rigorous time schedule, at five minutes, we will give this call that we just blew for on Kristen. She was going a little long, but you did a good job. It sounds like this. And then at seven. It sounds like this. Well, okay. How does this work? <laughs> you gotta put your whole mouth around Go it. Go for it. No, you got it. No. <laughs> Did I sell that? Yeah, okay. Without further ado. We're gonna invite our first guest up. So please, I wanna invite Sarah Kennard up. Sarah is a transplant from the lower 48 who enjoys long walks on Sandy Beach, Carolyn's with her coffee, and days when her socks match. She was not ready to call herself an Alaskan, not yet but she's working up to it. So please, Sarah, join us. So before I get started with my story tonight, I think it would probably be pretty prudent of me to fill you in on a little background information. The majority of my resume, as it were, is not filled with many jobs that required much in the way of a formal uniform. 
In fact, the majority of my high school and college working years were spent inside REI, which for those of you who have never been inside REI, or some call it the world's largest adult outdoor equipment playland, um, the uniform really has one major requirement, which is this really great giant green utility vest. And it's uh, really good looking and um, super useful. It's got lots of pockets, which is good for your pencils and your notepads. Um, also really great during the college years for hiding that, you know, beer. That being said, as soon as I actually started my first job um, working at a catering company, the formal uniform kind of threw me for a loop, as it were. They are required to wear black pants. I think I did a great job at this my first night. I showed up wearing black pants as required. My manager, though, wasn't super pumped to see the Nike swoosh on the side of my workout pants. So um, I, I upgraded, though, eventually. I think he about fainted from um, excitement the first day I showed up wearing a black belt. I even managed one day to get down the, um, the fitted white shirt I was required to wear. The real struggle, though, uh, being a female in my early 20s, late 20s, is the tie situation. I uh, don't really know how to tie them. So I am creening along the streets of Juneau. Sorry, those of you that I ran off the road. I <laughs> am searching for my tie. I'm running late, as per usual, and fishing around in my passenger empty seat in my bag for my tie. I know it's in there somewhere. Fish it out of the bottom, finally, and notice one really big problem. This tie has magical properties. It's actually one of those ties, I don't know if you're familiar, they actually zip up the back. Really great. <laughs> Over the head, zip up, and you're good to go. This one, though, had a big problem. Um, pulling it out of my bag, I look over, and it's in two. There's the tie, and then there's the zippy thing, and they're not together anymore. Uh, <laughs> this is a big problem. Since, I, like I say, I don't know how to tie a tie. I, I did, though, for whatever reason, have a second tie in my bag. Apparently, I was thinking more than I thought. I fish around yet again as I'm, like, pulling up around the uh, backside of the governor's mansion. I, like, wave hi to Lieutenant Governor Ben. Hey, I'm going to serve you your dinner later. Um, as I'm, like, trying to find my tie. I fish the tie out of my bag. Get, find a parking spot, get out of the car, and uh, run up to the governor's mansion through the shrubbery and find what I'm, I call in my head the servant's entrance. I'm sure it has a better name than that. But um, they let me in, and uh, everybody, obviously, as I'm late, has way better things to be doing than paying attention to me. I poke my head into the room. Hey, what's up? Uh, they are all running around, and um, I uh, ask the room at large, does anybody know where the bathroom is? Anybody? The only person that answers is actually the cook, who has way better things to be doing than directing me around the governor's mansion. Uh, she shouts over her shoulder as she tosses something out of the grill. Yeah, it's around the corner, down the hall, to the back. Got it. Cool. I can do that. Turn around, making about face downstairs. Bottom of the stairs, uh, down the hall, there's doors. There's one on the right. This is the door on the right, I'm assuming. It has to be. Open the door and uh, poke my head in, lean in. This is not a bathroom. This is a basement. What is this? Close the door, enter back into the hallway. Okay. Well, there's the other doors actually um, are locked. They look very locked. Uh, that's not going to work. So I march to the only open door I see. It's very at the end of the wall, hall, and open archway, peek my head in. That's a bedroom. Yeah, this feels really creepy now. So I back out. 
and uh, head back to that first door I opened. I lean in again. Maybe there was something I missed the first time around. And as I poke my head in, I notice up actually to the right and just out of reach is a mirror on the wall. Perfect. This is really all I'm after. Anyway, so I walk in, uh, hear the door close behind me, and I uh, over the head with a tie, and I'm looping and looping. And I'm pretty sure I remembered that there was like, you know, a through the loop. So I'm throughing the loop, and I'm around and around. Uh, I'm becoming more and more aware of just how late I'm running. (laughs) And as I eventually manage to tie it into something that resembles a knot, um, I decide this is good enough. I turn her back around to go out through the door, and as I reach out and grab the handle, (laughs) you've got to be kidding me. There There is a lock. There is a keypad the size of Fort Knox. Why would you lock me inside the room? Keep me from coming into the room. Why am I in the room? Let me be outside the room. So I turn back around, and there are two other doors. There's one leading outside, and there's another one leading I don't know where. I'm going to go with outside. That sounds good. There's light. I head over there, and there is another one of these things keeping me in this room. So calm down. Okay, fine. Turn back around and um, go to the other door. There is no keypad on the outside, but I'm kind of aware of how this situation works now. So I open the door and look down. There's another one right there, the inside of this room. And I poke my head in, and there is um, cars. Scrush. It's not helpful. There's ski boots, which I'm thinking probably didn't get really used last year, but I file that away for later. I step back into the room, and I spend, I'm not sure how long, like back and forth, back and forth. Why did I tie this tie already? It's getting tighter. Eventually, I go back over to that door, and like it's going to change. Only it did, actually. I have no idea why. And the fresh air is just like washing over me like I've been in a cave for years. And I peek out, and I'm on the lawn. I'm on the lawn. Why am I on the lawn? I go outside. Oh, hey, Mr. Governor. He's like right there having dinner, lunch with his pals. I traipse across the lawn, hoping nobody sees this girl with her knot um, as I'm, like, running through the greenery. I tiptoe back through the shrubbery, and there's the cook looking through the window at me because there's another keypad keeping me from going inside. She's like, oh, my God, she's outside. I go inside, and um, I've managed to completely miss the salad course. So sorry. And at the very end of the meal, everybody's kind of calmed down, putting away the, you know, silverware. And the governor and his wife come in. They're all big smiles. They're thanking everybody for their hard work and they're shaking hands. And as they get to me, they're big smiling faces and, you know, thank you. And I respond in English, I think. And all I can hear in my head is just, dear Mr. Governor, you keep a really clean garage. Our next storyteller is Andrew Washburn. Mr. Wash, he refers to himself as Mr. Washburn, this whole biography. Mr. Washburn is from the Illinois. He moved from Ketchikan to Juneau just over a year ago. Mr. Washburn continues to like Ketchikan. The forest is much prettier there than that around Juneau. He prefers Juneau when it snows, or at least when Mendenhall Lake is frozen smooth for skating. He would like to see a guillotine in the lobby of every museum. Mr. Washburn likes old boats. Mr. Washburn once sat in front of Neil Young at a Chicago Cubs game, but was too nervous to turn around and say hello, though he is a huge fan. Please help me welcome Andrew to the stage. 
this story is about me trying to stick it to somebody. If you know me, this wouldn't come as much as a surprise that this is something I like to do. The story takes place about 16 years ago. I had just finished college. I'd moved back in uh, to my parents' home. So it was mom, dad, Bob the Beagle. I was broke. I moved in because I was broke, and I needed to make some money, so I got a job. I'd applied for a job at an outdoor uh, sporting goods store in uh, a large, this is in the large metropolitan area of a large Midwestern city. It had five locations. I applied for a job as a sales associate at the main location. They met me during the interview. They sort of got my vibe and decided that I'd be better working in back. So I got a job as transfer driver. My job was to drive between the five locations. Well, when I started, it was four. Uh, they added a fifth. Um, but I would, so let's say you went into one store and you wanted your triple XL chartreuse yoga pants, but you wanted them actually in purple, and they were at another store, I would go get them from that other store and bring them to you. This is a job done by drones now, I'm pretty sure, certain. But anyway, it was, it was fine. Uh, I, and, uh, I wouldn't say I enjoyed the job, the pay was miserable, but you know, it was fun driving around, and I got to talk to a lot of the, the salespeople, and I got great deals on gear, uh, boots, that sort of thing. They, like I said, they opened a store, another store um, while I was there, and it was right at this moment. Maybe you all remember this moment when, when sportswear, when activewear became fashion. And so these stores were in this rapid process of, oh, you couldn't get boots there anymore. You couldn't get sleeping bags or tents or backpacks, but you could get a lot of jeans and stretchy pants and, and hot pants and that sort of thing. And this new store, which was right downtown, was sort of typifying this change. And this kind of chapped my hide, and it probably colored a lot of my work habits. Anyway, I liked most of the people I worked with, except for the manager of that new location, who was always complaining. She was complaining uh, ceaselessly about uh, things were late. Things were the wrong item had gotten transferred. They had coffee stains on them. They were dirty. They smelled like motor oil or marijuana or, you know, just like, I, I know it was my job to make sure that these things got there fine, but like I said, they weren't paying me very much. Um, but, so she always complained and it was my, uh, and so I really, I really just wanted to stick it to this person before I left. And I was there about a year and the whole time just brooding on this idea. And I didn't have... I, I didn't have a great way, but with a, just a few days left in the job, I remembered something. My mind stretched back a few months earlier to a February night where I was sitting around the kitchen table with my mom and the familiar scratching of Bob the Beagle came at the back door. She got up, she was closer, and went to let him in. And instead of hearing the door open, I just heard a screech. I got up to investigate and found my mom recoiling in horror as I looked out the door in the porch light, I saw Bob with the frozen corpse of a squirrel, arms up in a scratching motion in his mouth. I, don't, I didn't know why at the time, uh, but I took the squirrel, I wrapped it in uh, paper towels and put it in a plastic bag and put it in the chest freezer. Four months later, I, I figured out why I did that. It was... A, it was the night before my last day of work, and I decided to get back at this manager for, you know, just uh, the ceaseless complaining, was uh, I would, I took, so I took the squirrel, 
I put it in a, a brand new shoebox I had I had left in my car. I I sort of uh, I taped it shut and wrote a note on the on the front like you know manager you know only I can't remember I forget what her name was. Anyway, I went to that store on my normal rounds and I placed the box right on her desk because I really wanted to make sure she was the one to open it. And then I left, like everything was normal. By the time I got back at the end of the day to headquarters, uh, the proverbial squirrel had hit the fan, and it, uh, I guess, well, what happened was I had hoped that the manager would open it. That is not what happened. In fact, my friend, one of the sales associates, found the box, thinking it was a special order she had made of some fancy trail running shoes, had taken the box, taken it out onto the sales floor, to the sales counter where there was a line of customers, <laughs> and opened it. Now, I, I don't know exactly what happened then. I like to imagine she screamed, much like my mother at the back door, through the box, having the squirrel describe a fantastic arc through the store. But I don't know if that's happened, but I like, I like to think that it did. What, what definitely did happen was I spent the last hour of my time, my, my time uh, as an employee there, writing a letter of a, an a, apology <laughs> to um, both managers at that store, the uh, company owners, the sales associate, and really it's a story about me trying to stick it to somebody, but really it's uh, just a hapless shenanigan. Thanks. <laughs> Paula Rohrbacher has been living in Juneau since 1978, when she came up as a Jesuit volunteer for one year. She loves her life in Douglas with her family and dogs. She is four foot nine and a half inches tall, which makes her very special in my heart. Come on up, Paula. Okay, as Tom said, I am four foot nine inches tall. And the shenanigans I'm going to tell are not necessarily my shenanigans, but the shenanigans that people get up to when confronted with somebody who's short. <laughs> There's a way that people who are taller, that means almost anybody, including <laughs> some 10-year-olds that I know, look at people, especially women, who are short. And uh, I know that this won't go over the radio, but this is the way that some taller mostly women look at short people, especially me, like this. <laughs> so all my life I've struggled with being taken seriously. The first time that I met my husband's family, we went to dinner at my parents-in-law's house and his sister, first thing she said to me was, it's so nice to meet someone who's shorter than I am. I get that a lot, actually. I've had several people say that to me. And you know, even though I usually just smile and nod, what I want to say is, I'm so glad that I could bring some joy into your otherwise meaningless life. <laughs> But that's not the story I want to tell. 
The story I want to tell is a story about um, a trip that I took to Skagway with a friend who was living here in Juneau at the time. We went to Skagway, and it was September, I think, so it was getting kind of cool. So I was wearing a, my brand new parka from moving to Alaska. It was the kind that was blue on the outside and orange on the inside and had the fake fur around the thing, you know. So I thought I was really Alaskan, you know. So I was wearing my parka, and uh, we were walking down the street, and we saw this man who um, must have been the last remnants of the tourists, you know. He came up and said, uh, can you tell me where the post office is? And, you know, we didn't know. I mean, we, were, we weren't from Skagway, but we said, well, we think it's down this way, you know, down the main street. You know. And he said, thank you. And then he looked at me like this. <laughs> and he said, do you play football? And I said, no. <laughs> and, and he said, well, you look like a sturdy little boy. <laughs> By this time, my friend, Nancy, was on, literally on the ground, <laughs> rolling around laughing. And I said, I'm a grown woman. And he said, oh my God, I am so sorry. And I said, ah, oh, and he just wandered away. So that's when I started growing my hair a little bit longer and wearing things that were a little bit more form-fitting. But I, it didn't make me grow. So. Anyway, those are some of the shenanigans that people get up to when they're confronted by a short person. Thank you. Sol Neely is an assistant professor of English and philosophy at UAS, where he also serves as the honors program coordinator. He earned his BA and MA in English at UAA and his PhD through Peru University's philosophy and literature PhD program. In fall 2012, he started the Flying University, a prison education program that brings university students inside the prison for mutual and collaborative study with incarcerated students. More recently, under the leadership of formerly incarcerated students now attending UAS, the Flying University has developed into a re-entry effort that utilizes university and community resources to reduce recidivism and aid students transitioning from prison to university life. As a young graduate student studying critical theory, existentialism, and social political philosophy with an interest in anarchy, Professor Neely was inspired by the Situationist and fused his political activism with theater and spectacle. Accordingly, the theme of his story tonight is political shenanigans. Shenanigans. In particular, political shenanigans. I have a colorful history of committing political shenanigans, many of which I would love to disclose this evening 
in public, but I'm not sure what the statute of limitations is, so I won't reveal secrets or make confessions. But I did think I'd tell this story tonight about the time I was dragged out of a Colin Powell speech at Purdue University uh, by the police. Uh, the event took place in February 2007, about two years after Colin Powell retired from the Bush administration and almost four years to the day that he gave his famous case for war in Iraq before the UN. Purdue University is a very conservative campus, deeply implicated in the war machine. So when it was announced that Colin Powell was gonna speak on campus, the tickets sold out in about 15 minutes, which set a university record. The story I wanna tell tonight is not particularly glorious because it happened all quite by accident. On the day that Powell was scheduled to speak, about three hours before the event, my buddy Andy and I were at a bar sharing a couple pitchers of beer, scheming about how we were gonna protest Powell's event. We didn't have a ticket, and so we couldn't get in, but we decided at the very least that we would picket the event, so we went back to our offices and made signs, and I think mine said something like, Colin Powell, live your life out as a redemption of your lies. And so slightly buzzed and armed with a couple of signs, we went down to the Stewart Center. <laughs> when we got there, the line was longer than anything I had seen, spiraling and snaking out of the auditorium lobby and down the labyrinthine halls of the Student Center. And our first task was to try to get a ticket. So I move up and down the line yelling, demand that Colin Powell repent for his lies and I will ask him the questions you won't ask, just give me a ticket. And I'm begging for a ticket to no avail, and then the anarchists and the cops show up. And the anarchists are undergraduate students clad in black, carrying their banners and their bandanas, and I lovingly refer to them as the anarchities. <laughs> and the cops are there threatening me with arrest, because if I stand too close to this wall, they'll arrest me, and if I stand too close to that wall, they'll arrest me. So they literally give me a sidewalk-sized path down the middle of the crowd that I'm allowed to stand in. And at this point, it's clear that I've accidentally become the default protest leader of the night. And so I decide just to try to walk in without a ticket. Just walk right in, the cops don't think it's funny, they throw me against the wall and threaten me with arrest, and so, for 90 minutes, this goes on. I'm just begging for a ticket to get in. And after hundreds of people file into the auditorium, there's about 20 people left, it eventually happens. And my buddy Andy's at the front of the line. He says, oh, I got a ticket, I got a ticket. And I think, oh, crap, okay, uh, now I've got to go in. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I asked the Anarchities, does anybody want this ticket? And they're like, no, you're on fire tonight, you do it. And I'm like, shit, they called my bluff, okay. Uh, and so uh, I grab my ticket and I walk up to the cops and I'm like, ha, 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 I got a ticket. And they don't think it's funny and they throw me against the wall a second time and they frisk me. And by frisking me, I mean they basically molest me and then they stole my magic markers and never gave them back. <laughs> and, I, and I go into the auditorium. The usher says, it's all full downstairs. You got to go upstairs. And I go upstairs and one of my students is like, Saul, Saul, come sit next to me. And so I sit next to my student I'm a little bit nervous and I look to the right, there's a secret service agent at the end of the aisle and I look to the left and there's a secret service agent at the end of that aisle and I look to the back and there's a secret service agent out at the balcony doors and I'm thinking, shit, what am I gonna do? I gotta kicked out, I can't just sit here now and watch Colin Powell speak. I gotta do something, but I don't wanna get up and yell 
And then it occurs to me, there's this crazy madman Slovenian philosopher named Slavoj Žižek who has this idea of interpassive subjectivity. And if you follow the law, the letter to the T, you can subvert it. And so I thought, if they want me to sit here and face forward and applaud what I'm supposed to, then that's what I'm going to do, except I'm going to do it out of time. And, <laughs> and Colin Powell comes out, and it's a standing ovation, and I'm sitting there. And uh, the applause dies down, and uh, Colin Powell opens by saying something really strange. He says, I'm looking out at the auditorium, and I see people wall to wall. And this reminds me, I don't know what he meant by this, this reminds me of Vietnam. So I stood up, and I started applauding. <laughs> and I was the only one applauding. And I was the only one standing up. And the kid in front of me says, now's not the time. And I said, when is the time? I'm out of time. What are you talking about? And about five minutes later, he says, uh, something strange. I should be home with my wife right now. So I stand up again and I start <laughs> applauding. I'm the only one in the entire auditorium applauding. And that's it. Secret Service come down on me. They grab me. They, I go limp. They drag me out. They're like my puppet masters. They're pulling me this way and pulling me that way, making me look like I'm arresting, but I'm just totally limp, you know? And they throw me out in the lobby and they take my room and the Anarchities are singing songs of solidarity with me. And I'm like, this is it. I'm going to jail. But they didn't arrest me. In fact, it's kind of anticlimactic. They let me go. So for two hours, the Anarchities and me are hanging out in the lobby, bored, waiting for the people to come out, wondering what are we going to do when they all come out. So the people start finally coming out when Colin Powell is done speaking, and the Anarchities decide to do a die-in. They're all laying down all over the floor, and the people are walking around them, trying to get through them. And I like hear taps playing somewhere, and uh, I decide, you know what? I'm just going to start dancing. So I start dancing in the middle of this whole event, and that was enough. Cops didn't like the dancing. They didn't mind any of this other spectacle. But as soon as I started dancing, they lined up like a phalanx, like an army, and they just pushed our backs to the wall, out the door, onto the steps. And for two hours, it was just us anarchists yelling at the cops, and it was silly. And it's clear they were about to arrest us, so we ended up leaving. But uh, I like this story. It's anticlimactical, but I'm reminded of two things. One, Michel Foucault says, our activism should never be organized by sad militarism or unifying paranoia. And Emma Goldman famously says, if I can't dance, I don't want to be a part of your revolution. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on November 10th, 2015 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was shenanigans. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org.
right, I want to invite up Eve Soudier. She first stepped foot in Alaska when she moved to Kotzebue to intern with the Public Defender Agency. She fell in love with Alaska. So after law school, she returned to do criminal defense work for the Public Defender. She has lived in Nome, where she met her husband, Fairbanks, and for the last 11 months, Juneau. She still does indigent criminal defense, but for the Office of Public Advocacy. She has a crazy rescue dog and a fat cat. In her spare time, she plays roller derby, skating as a blocker with the Juno Roller Girls. She hikes, ski jours with her dog when there's snow, and cooks Iranian food. So please, welcome Eve. So my husband is a super nerd. If there were a hierarchy, he would be the nerd king. He's got a PhD in ancient Near Eastern studies, which is basically Hebrew Bible and all the culture that goes into it. And when we've traveled, he's the one standing in the middle of a field in the blistering hot sun looking at the rock um, because he's read about it somewhere. And I'm the one saying, let's go, it's a rock. So um, when we go to Israel and the Palestinian territories, he's my guide for all things ancient, and it's a lot of fun. He's in charge of the Hebrew language, and I'm in charge of the Arabic. Not that I actually speak Arabic, I just fake it really well. And I apologize really well as well. We had been traveling, and we'd traveled to Jerusalem, and Tel Aviv, and Bethlehem, and Haifa, and Nablus. Well, we were in Nablus, and we'd gone to Jenin and a couple other towns. But when we were in Nablus, he really wanted to go to Mount Gerizim. It's super important in the ancient Hebrew Bible, super important to Samaritans, and he wanted to get to the top of it. So um, I arranged a taxi um, in Arabic as best I could. We piled in, and off we went. And we drove, and we were almost to the top of this mountain. And there was a checkpoint, and the Israeli Defense Force was there. And an IDF soldier leaned into the window and started speaking Hebrew to Paul. And Paul spoke in Hebrew back. He's a lot better at it than I am. And they spoke for a little while, and then Paul turned to me and he said, we can go. So I looked at the cab driver, and in Arabic I said, we can go. So off we went. We drove a little bit longer, and we decided we would be let out um, just where we decided. And when we stepped out of the cab, we kind of entered a different world. The first thing we noticed were all the house numbers looked like they were in Arabic, but Paul said they may have been in Aramaic. Second thing we noticed was all of the houses looked like settler houses, and they have a very um, distinct look to them, and so they looked like settler houses. And the third thing was that there was nobody on the street, not a single soul. It was deserted, nothing. We wandered around for about five minutes, and Pretty soon, our cab driver just comes flying back in the cab. He is speeding toward us, slams on his brakes, skids to a halt, jumps out of the cab, slams the door, and starts rapid-fire Arabic at me. And it's like, Arabic, Arabic, Arabic! And I looked at him, and I go, Mafahimet, I don't understand. And so he got louder, because that's what it works. And he goes, Arabic, 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 Arabic! And I go, Mafahimet. I don't understand. So he looked over at Paul and he grabbed his hand and he dragged him into this bodega-like store. And there was an old guy sitting behind a counter 
And this old guy kind of looked like the guy from Marathon Man. Um, not Dustin Hoffman, but the other one, the, is it safe? That guy. And he and the cab driver started talking, and I think they were talking in Arabic. I could pick out a couple words. It was very, very fast. And in quick succession, the cab driver left looking really frustrated. And this old guy turns to Paul and in perfect English says, I am a Samaritan. You have 20 minutes. Ask me what you will. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a Samaritan. And if you are familiar with the Bible stories, this is like the good Samaritan, like a descendant of the Samaritans. There's only about 700 of them. And this was one. There's 700 in the world. And this old guy had just told my husband, ask away. So uh, he just got all excited. And they immediately started talking about the Samaritan religion and what it was like. And pretty soon it got kind of heady and, and over my head. And so I kind of, I walked out and found the cab driver and he was leaning up against the cab, just looking sick, looked sick. And I um, offered him a bottle of water and he politely refused and I tried to converse with him and it, it wasn't happening. I just couldn't get the conversation off the ground. So I excused myself and went back into the store and Paul and the Samaritan were wrapping up. Uh, we thanked him and we left and we got back in the cab and the driver was just sweating profusely and he kept swallowing and he had a death grip on the steering wheel and his eyes are darting back and forth like a prey animals. And we drive toward the IDF checkpoint and he stops. And the same soldier who had talked to Paul leans in the window all the way in and said, you did not understand what I said. Our next storyteller is Andy English. Miller. Andy and grew up in a mining town in Minnesota. He went to college to in Madison, Wisconsin where he Finally, drew political cartoons for the student newspaper and dated a communist and for most of sophomore year. His first job and in Alaska was as a newspaper reporter like, in Sitka. He lived in Juneau so briefly told the in the cab past driver, and we returned go, and he didn't fall believe after me. spending the better um, part so of the last two years working as an very, attorney very at a personal injury and criminal defense firm in Wasilla. To his surprise, and Andy sometimes finds himself missing Wasilla, and it's a sort of character. But he has no intention of willingly returning. his smile came back to his face, and a twinkle kind of showed up in his eye, and he got super, super jovial. And we drove back. Well, uh, a couple of summers ago, when well. I was we paid him very well because we didn't know if we'd put him in danger. And afterwards, Paul and I were talking, and as near as we can tell, the Samaritans aren't particularly happy with the Israeli government. Neither are the Palestinians. They're kind of in the same boat, a little bit. But as near as we can tell, these two people got together and hatched a plan on the fly to mess with the Israeli Defense Force soldiers, and they were using us as their unwitting pawns. And unbeknownst to us, it was probably a pretty good day for shenanigans. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Andy Miller. Andy grew up in a mining town in Minnesota. He went to college in Madison, Wisconsin, where he drew political cartoons for the student newspaper and dated a communist for most of sophomore year. His first job in Alaska was as the newspaper reporter in Sitka. He lived in Juneau briefly in the past and returned this fall after spending the better part of the last two years working as an attorney at a personal injury and criminal defense firm in Wasilla. To his surprise, Andy sometimes finds himself missing Wasilla and its assorted characters, but he has no intention of willingly returning 
anytime soon, please help me welcome Andy. Well, a couple of summers ago when I was living in Sitka, I got myself into some trouble when some friends and I figured out how to play a few songs together on our instruments, and pretty quickly I started telling people I had the best punk rock band in Sitka. And uh, I stand by that. I think we would have been the best punk rock band if we'd been here in Juno too. In a true punk rock form, none of our songs were over about two minutes. None of them had more than about three chords. We played with more raw emotion and heart than any type of musical ability. And uh, finally, we only played acoustic instruments, which to me was a statement that we were so punk rock as to be defiant of one of the central tenets of punk rock music, which is to be loud. Unfortunately, before long, this other band in town heard what I've been saying, and they decided for the first time that they actually were the best punk rock band in Sitka. They were called the Glorious Youth Parade, and they had amplifiers and microphones, and sometimes they even performed in front of people at, at bars and at house parties, which in my mind made them entirely too establishment to actually qualify as punk rock at all. So I didn't quit saying my band was the best punk band, um, I didn't engage with them at all. We just kept practicing. And after about three or four times that we'd practice, we figured we should probably get a website. And our, our band was called The Big Fat Babies. And I went online and I found out that thebigfatbabies.com was for sales $20 a year. And I could afford that, so I bought it. And I made a website with my web designing skills. It just said, welcome to the internet home of Sitka's best punk rock band. And that was it. That was all it was for a couple of weeks. And some people actually went to the site and said, you should probably add some stuff to this. But there, we didn't have like pictures of the band or you know, upcoming gigs to mention or you know, song clips. None of that existed. So I thought, well, at least we have some good stories about our band. So I wrote up some stories about the band and put them on the website, like the time that Eddie Vedder called me and told me that his band Pearl Jam really liked our tambourine player and she was actually gonna leave our band for Pearl Jam and there were some quotes from Eddie and some quotes from me and a, a picture of Pearl Jam there on the website. There, there were also some stories about the Glorious Youth Parade and their various inadequacies as musicians which, which they saw and they started to tell people in response that my band didn't even exist, that we were afraid to play in public or show our faces. And again, I, I didn't engage, I was above that, but I, I realized that they didn't have a website. And I thought, if you're gonna be the best punk rock band in Sitka, you should at least have a website. So I went online and I saw the gloriousyouthparade.com was for sale for $20 a year. So I bought it. And I made a website for them, and I put some Photoshop pictures of them performing at a nursing home. And I like some sort of Christian elementary school, which I thought was decidedly unpunk rock. And I think they were really flattered to have a website for their band. And unfortunately, I think they were also a little concerned that they had no control whatsoever what went on to it. And um, one day, um, I ran into the lead singer of the Glorious Youth Parade, and he said, you know, this has got to stop. We've got to figure out once and for all who's the best punk rock band in Sitka. And he said, 
we need to have a battle of the bands. Your band, my band, the people can decide. And I think he thought that we were afraid or we actually didn't exist. And I said, okay. And by then my band had practiced a few times, six or seven, and, and we, 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 we got together. And, and I guess my only concern about it was that I was afraid that people wouldn't understand punk rock the way I did. And they'd go to this battle of the bands and they'd see you know, a microphone or some amplifiers and they'd think Glorious Youth Parade, that's the band. And I wanted to do something that you know, showed people that we were punk rock, made a statement before the uh, actual uh, battle of the bands. And the Glorious Youth Parade put a poster together. It was actually pretty good with some clip art saying, come to the battle of the bands. And I thought, well, I can do a more punk rock poster. And I thought, what would be the most punk rock thing? And I guess this is the shenanigan, because um, I usually don't do things that get me in trouble, and I thought this was pushing the line a little bit. And I was thinking, okay, I want to find a very establishment person's picture, someone very conservative buttoned up, some of the antithesis of punk rock music like Ronald Reagan, and, and have them on the poster saying, I love the you know, Glorious Youth Parade, I'm going to go to the battle of the bands. And I thought about it, and it occurred to me, that the perfect person for this was Jim Dinley. And he was this man in, probably in his 70s, he had white hair, he um, came from Texas or something, he um, was former military officer, I think, and he was the city administrator of Sitka. And <laughs> he hadn't been in town very long, and even the very establishment people were sort of turned off that he was so establishment. So without telling him, I found <laughs> his picture on the city website, and I took it and I made it into this poster that said, join me. Jim Dinley in supporting the <laughs> Glorious Youth Parade at the Battle of the Bands. I thought this was just in the name of punk rock, I'd get away with it. And I put them up at the library in the city hall, in the post office, in the harbor bathrooms, in the bar bathrooms, and places like that. And a lot of them got taken down pretty quickly, but um, it, it really didn't matter. People, people saw them. I know that they saw them and they understood that we were punk rock and they came to the Battle of the Bands. And I don't know if Jim Dinley was there, I don't remember seeing him, but <laughs> I do know that when we got up with our mandolin and our violin and our, our upright bass and me singing, that there was, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that the Big Fat Babies were the best punk rock band in Sitka. And I don't know if that's shenanigans, but thank you all for, for being here. <laughs> Colette Costa. Now, we ask our speakers to provide us a uh, biography, and almost all of them do. However, Colette did not. And I asked her what she wanted to say, and she said, make it up. So Colette is the uh, organist for the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. She's a former professional wrestler and is known around town for fine eateries, movies, and uh, some singing. So please invite up Colette Costa. Seven minutes. Long story short, uh, as many of you may or may not know, I found a snake a while ago. It was never in the theater, just so you know. So this is sort of related to wild animals crossing my paths. Back in high school, I had a couple friends, Todd and Peter, their real names, and they decided it would be a super good idea if they gave me a pet tarantula for Christmas. 
for absolutely no reason. Didn't particularly like tarantulas, they got me one anyway. So now I'm stuck with this tarantula. So I was a choir nerd, Todd was a band geek, and Peter was a theater dork. So you can imagine how many friends we had. Pretty much each other, yeah. So I'm stuck with this spider, and it wasn't even a very nice tarantula, like the kind that walk on you. It was like this horrible hissing monstrosity. Every time you'd come within the room, it'd be like, shh, you could hear it hissing, shh. My, I was like, what do I do with this? So I put it in a cage, I put a light, I don't know anything about a tarantula, and I got one. So I go to the pet store, and I say, I got this tarantula, what do I do? He hands me a bag of crickets, awesome. I gotta pay for these, I get them free in my yard. This seems like a total, this whole spider thing's already a ripoff. So I go back, give the tarantula spirit, and I don't, go to school. I have this thing for about two days, and I come back one day, and I'm not lying, there's two of them in there. So I'm thinking, holy crap, I got a pregnant tarantula. So now I'm stuck with two of them. What do I do with that? And I, have n I know nothing about him. So I go back to the pet store, I buy twice as many crickets. I figure I got two of them to feed. I go back, I throw the crickets in, I go to school, I come back later, the strangest thing has happened. Now, I have two tarantulas, one of them's only got six legs, and all the crickets are chewing on these spider legs. And just having a hell of a time at it too, just really enjoying this meal. And I think, something is not right here. Because the other one's not eating at all, this one's dead, and the, the crickets are all, thank you. So I did the only logical thing. I worked at the library at the time, because that's what nerds do. And I go and I finally think, well, maybe I should read them about spiders. I don't know. <laughs> oh, they molt. Did you know that? Tarantulas molted? Yeah, they don't molt like a crab where they throw off the carapace and then do something else. No, they like, the backside of their thorax thing like comes off and they like pull themselves out of the shell and then just sit there. And so it looks exactly like a tarantula. It wasn't pregnant. Tarantulas don't have full-grown other tarantulas. <laughs> Mark that one down. Now, I should have clued into this when I saw on the second tarantula that the back half of it was open like a hatchback, but I was not that clever. So uh, I'm like, oh boy, this is terrible. I've killed Bob, the tarantula. They also named it Bob. We are not clever art students. And so Bob went in the toilet. My mother was never so happy. And now I got this thing. I'm like, actually, you know, I was also into dead things. And not that way. But I thought, <laughs> well, this is a super cool thing. Like, it's totally intact. Looks like, I mean, this could be good for something, right? And I thought, I got this awesome idea. And my high school, the choir room was right next to the band room. And there was just like a wall and a door in between them. And we had this big Italian choir instructor who was really Italian. And they had this big German uh, conductor who was very German, Herr Schultz. And so it was very, the classes were very strict. And we'd go in, and we would warm up. The choir would always try to warm up first to drown out the screeching of the band. So. And our classes were at the same time, like eight in the morning. Who does that? So I thought this would be a funny joke, you know, because Todd gave me the dang thing. So I got to school early and I snuck over to the pan room and I opened up his tuba case. Tuba, that's how dorky we were. And I took this exoskeleton out and I just gently laid it on top of his tuba and showed it back. And I snuck back to the choir room and I thought, this is gonna be hilarious, <laughs> right? 
So we're warming up, and the choir's there, and we're ah, doing all this warm-ups. And normally, we would warm up for a little bit, and we'd be doing our ahs, and then the band would start middle C, and they'd start that awful screeching. Well, we had gone through about two ah, ah, ahs, which is about when the band would do their middle C, and all of a sudden, there was a sound that went something like this. Like, from the other room, it was like, we were going ah, ah, kind of like that, but like Mike higher, and it was very Todd-like sound. And at that moment, the choir went completely silent. And for some reason, a lot of people looked at me. And uh, about four and a half seconds later, the door between the rooms, which was like sacrosanct, you never went near the door, like you don't cross the band in the choir. The door burst open like the Tet Offensive, and Herr Schultz came in, and he was, he was as red as my shirt, and his white hair was standing on end, and he walked to the front, and he just went, Costa! And, and then there came from the band a whole chorus of shrieking as I learned later, Bob's exoskeleton was thrown from one part of the band to, and eventually you could tell when it got to the flute section because the screaming was the highest on that. And uh, I never got Bob back after that. And Todd and Peter never gave me a pet tarantula again. And I would just like to say, if anyone out there owns any kind of arachnid or um, alligator or anything, I don't want it. So please keep it where you are. And also, not that hilarious to put what looks like a live tarantula in someone's tuba case. So if you're thinking of doing that, don't. And then I did what any normal 17-year-old girl would do in a situation like that. I ran out of the building so fast and was like at the 7-Eleven buying Snickers before they even knew I was gone. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on November 10th, 2015. The theme for the evening was shenanigans. To tell your story or to find out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Kristen Stouter, Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, and Steve Suing. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. Oh my heart.